Hey, uh, before we get rolling, as we, uh, if you're just joining us again, welcome. My name is Mark. I'm one of the elders here. It is a joy to be with you to worship God this morning. Uh, we are in this series that we started off next week. It's a 36-part series, so we're, we're going big on this one. Uh, we're going through the Gospel of John, and Matthew kicked us off last week. But question for you, uh, I want to know who here is a native of Colorado? Like you were born here, okay? Now keep your hands up, or maybe you, like from a very young age, you, you grew up here. I just want to see, like, so I want to see who else is making all my housing expensive. Okay. <laughs> Uh, you can put your hands up. Okay, so well, one of the things, I'm also a native. I was born in Aurora and uh, grew up here. And uh, one of the things I noticed is that oftentimes, not always, but oftentimes, the people that are natives, um, you know, we, we kind of just take for granted the, the mountains, right? Like every now and again, a sunset will happen and we'll be like, that's pretty amazing. Or we'll see the snow-capped peaks and that's pretty amazing. And, and when I was a little kid, I, I grew up in the mountains for a while. And so I didn't ever really think about the mountains that much, except for when I was nine years old, uh, my, my cousins from Kansas uh, came to visit us and they're, they're little kids and we went camping. And I just remember their awe. They, they were just like, Oh my goodness. I mean, they're from flat Kansas. And so when they come to the mountains, they're like, look at this. And they, they were constantly pointing out features of the mountains and constantly praising the mountains. And as we got up into the mountains, they were like, this is a mountain river. This is a mountain lake. Like they, they loved it. And, and at first I was like, that's weird. Yeah, of course. It's just the mountains. And they're like, no, 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 you, you got to look at this. We've never seen anything like this. And I found throughout the weeks spending time with them that as they awed and as they were marveled by the mountains, I started to awe and marvel because I started to see things through their eyes. I'm like, wow, you're right. That, that is kind of that is kind of cool. That, that is kind of amazing. And I've, I've just kind of taken it for granted because I've lived here my whole life. Uh, Maybe, maybe the mountains aren't your thing, though. Maybe for you, it's the ocean. That, that's, that's what was true for me. I remember our first family road trip going to California, and the, from the first moments getting pummeled by the waves in San Diego, I was in love with the ocean, the, the power of it, the majesty of it. Uh, and, and so this, this uh, uh, like when I see the ocean, I, I worship God, especially if I'm in the ocean, I worship God. If, I, if I'm in a coral reef with 10,000 fish and all the colors and all that, like there is a praise going on there that I just get to enter into, and it fills my soul. Now, I'll never forget the, uh, the first time I saw a shark in the open waters. <laughs> uh, we uh, had, uh, had taken a ferry out to another island. We were living in Japan, and uh, then we got our kayaks, and we kayaked to another uninhabited island to camp there. And at night, uh, we wanted to go out to the coral reef. And so that's a few hundred yards off the, the coast there. And so we kayak out there, put down the anchor and, and get into the water. And the, the water, the ocean at night is, is uh, simultaneously the most peaceful place and the most terrifying place in, in, on the planet in that moment. And when you get in the water at night with your little dive light, um, I, didn't know if, I, don't, I don't know if you know this, but uh, they're pumping music into the ocean at that time. It's dun dun like I heard it, I heard it, I knew it was in there. For some of you are like, what do you, you're too young for that, but you'll get the reference later. And so you're just hearing the music play, and it's not, it's not peaceful music, but you're going, and different animals come out at night, and then over the reef comes this 
white-tipped reef shark. Now, that's not a big shark. It's like three or four feet, but it's a shark, and, and you're in the water, and, and if you're 200 yards off the coast, and I'm like, oh my goodness, like simultaneously like, wow, God is amazing. I got to get out of here at the same time, and because uh, I'm thinking, uh, my dive light just saw this shark, but it only sees like 15 feet, and this, these islands have great white sharks in them. And so I was done in that moment, but it was still a worship moment. Got back in the kayak, told the other guys with, no, you're diving down to get the, the anchor. I'm not going back in the water. Uh, but that was the first, not the last time I swam with sharks. But it's always been uh, just, I love it. And so when I go to San Diego, I'm so confused that people are bored. They're looking at their phones. They're not, they're not taking, they're not in awe of the ocean. See, on this, this side of eternity, I think we have this diminishing capacity for awe. And it's true of mountains, and it's true of oceans, and it's true of God. It's part of our fallenness. We get bored. We get distracted. We, we focus our attention on other things. And so that which should invoke awe in us uh, just kind of doesn't. And so uh, that's why it's so important for us to come in here each time or go into each other's house and, and open the word and hear each other pray, praise. Because as I hear you sing, uh, I can now start to see through your eyes and say, oh yeah, God is glorious. God is amazing. And be reminded once again, that God is worthy of our worship and of our awe. But I need to be reminded. So when we gather here uh, and we come before this word, uh, it's not so much for our information. Probably if you've been a Christian for a while, if you've been a Christian more than a year, you probably won't learn or hear anything new this morning. And that's not the point of our gathering. The point of our gathering is to once again say, stop, look, so, so my wife does not love the ocean. She hates the ocean. Um, she, no, she really hates the ocean. Uh, she, well, she, she loves to look at the ocean. She doesn't like to be in the ocean. Uh, and and in, when, when the conditions are just right, uh, she will come with me. And, and there's a particular uh, coral reef with a sand bottom that, that we can go into. And she'll come with me, but she'll squeeze my hand, and I'll hear her screaming through her snorkel the whole time. And, and one time I brought out hot dogs. She didn't know. I, 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 and the fish just... And we were like swimming, and, and she was like, get away. And uh, she didn't love that. But she is unique in this. As a Coloradan and as a native Coloradan, she has always praised the beauty of the mountains. Like when I first met her 20, almost 22 years ago, she, she would talk to me about the mountains. I'm like, you're from here. I'm from here. We don't need to talk about this. Yes. <laughs> The mountains are good insofar as we know where the West is, and, I'm, uh, and, and that's good. But uh, no, she was always talking with. And then uh, she was heading off to school in Indiana for some dumb reason, and, uh, but, but I made a strategic move. Well, I thought it was a strategic move. I, I sent her a poster of the 14,000-foot mountains of Colorado. And I thought, man, I don't know where I'd be today if I didn't send that poster. I probably wouldn't be here. But I told her that this morning. She's like, oh, you sent that to me? And I was like, yeah, I sent that to you because you love the mountains. She's like, yeah, I remember. I, I, you know, it was a long time ago. I was like, a lot of guys send you posters of the mountains? But uh, I don't know where I'd go with that. Nonetheless, she loves the mountains. And if you've spent any time with her, 
like around the mountains. And it doesn't matter whether it's in, in Europe with the Alps or, or with Sandy in South America and the Andes or with her kids here. There's a phrase that comes out of her mouth all the time. All the time. In fact, now we, we kind of beat her to the punch. What does she say? I didn't. Feast your eyes. She, she keeps saying, feast your eyes. Like, we're like, yeah, we roll our eyes. But uh, she, she says, feast your eyes. No matter where, like if, the, if it's a beautiful scene, she'll be like, feast. And it's got to be mountains. That's the only thing she says it about. But it's feast your eyes, feast your eyes, feast your eyes. And we laugh and we, we beat her to the punch now. But you know what? There's a moment that happens there when she says, feast your eyes, where we're like, ah, actually, that is kind of cool. That, that, is, that is pretty spectacular, and, and we would have missed that if you didn't help us pause and look and feast our eyes. That, that's what John, the gospel writer, wants us to do. He wants us to feast our eyes on Jesus. In fact, uh, it's his stated purpose at the end of his gospel uh, in John chapter 20. Uh, it's the thesis that we'll come back to throughout this series because we want to be reminded of the whole reason why we have this book by the power of the Holy Spirit to us. John chapter 20, verse 30. I think I have it on the screen here. It says, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe and that word believe, we know, is pisteo. It means to actively trust, to treasure, to see, and to savor that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. And so last week, Matthew started us off in, in that Christological passage, or as Matthew called it, the nosebleed section of Christology. I call it the cosmic Christology, where, where John uh, talks about Christmas. So the week before, we had, we had Easter, and then we kicked off Christmas. And, and uh, in that moment, we were just in awe. And I sat back there once again, feasting my eyes on this cosmic Jesus who steps down from heaven and puts on flesh full of grace and truth. And as Matthew said last week, it's the 30,000-foot view. It's the nosebleed section. But now John is going to bring us down. He's going to help us in different ways each week to feast our eyes, to see the diamond, the jewel that is Jesus, and look at it from a different perspective each day, each time we gather. And today we're, we're going to look at a, a person whose whole goal, whole purpose in life was to see and savor Jesus and help us to do the same. John the Baptist. This is John's purpose. In verse 6, chapter 1, it says, There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but he came to bear witness. He came to see and savor Jesus and to help us see and savor Jesus. Verse 19, and this is the testimony because witnesses give testimony of John. When the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? It's a good question. It has a contemporary ring about it. Uh, we, we ask this of ourselves. Who am I? 
And in traditional cultures, you get your identity from your roles in society. What do I do as a father? Or what do I do in my job? And, but, but, but more in modern, postmodern Western culture, we, we are told to find our identity in ourselves. Uh, who do I think I am? And, and who am I going to be? But, and so we kind of mix the two. But they come to John and they ask, who are you? Because he was causing quite a stir. See, you got to understand the time. It was 400 years since God had spoken to his people. When Malachi put down his pen 400 years earlier, went silent. And the people of God had not heard another word from God for 400 years. But there was a time in, God, in God's people's history where um, they were in slavery and oppression after being in another land for 400 years. They were being oppressed by Pharaoh and the Egyptians. And, and at, at the end of that time, God sent a deliverer. And so as they got closer and closer to 400 years, they cried out more and more, God, deliver us from not the Egyptians, but from the pig-eating Gentile Romans. The Romans ruled the land with an iron fist all the way up to England, North Africa, to India, and uh, it was a bloody rule. And so there was this longing for God's deliverance, and they thought, maybe God will send someone like Moses. And they begin to talk to each other, and they say, maybe God will send the anointed one. Maybe he'll send Messiah. Maybe he'll send the Christ to come and break the shackles of our slavery to the Romans. And so they would long for this. And every now and again, a charismatic guy would rise up and he would get a following and he would begin to talk about overthrowing the Romans. And he would say, I'm the Christ. And, and this, this movement would rise up and, and the Romans would get wind of it and they would send in an army and they would crush it. And all the, all the followers would scatter or be killed themselves. And then so Romans were kind of tired of this tired of this idea that, they, that, that these Jewish people had a, a manifest destiny to overthrow them. And so they, they, uh, they, they had a brokered a kind of a tenuous deal with uh, the, the leaders at the time. It says, if you, if you can control your people, we'll let you keep your puppet government. We'll let you keep your puppet power. But if, if we hear any more wind of uproar, of, of throwing off the shackles, we're going to send in an army. In fact, they do in the year 70 AD and totally destroy Jerusalem. But so the, the, the religious leaders had a, had a, a motivation to keep the peace, and, and they didn't like any kind of rumblings going on, and, and they hear about rumblings from a guy that came up through the wrong channels. He, he, he didn't have a, an authorized rabbi to teach him. He, he didn't go to the right schools, and yet he didn't even go to Jerusalem. He was out in the wilderness, and yet there was something mistakably of God for him, about him. His message wasn't that fancy. It was repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand, we read. And yet people were, were going out to him and going out to him. And so now uh, the, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, they're getting nervous. And so they send some people and they, ask, they say, go figure out who that guy thinks he is. And they ask him, who are you? He answers, he confessed and did not deny, but confessed I am not the Christ. So as strong as possible, John is saying that John the Baptist says, I am not the Christ. Just so, just so you know, I'm not trying to lead a revolt. I'm not trying to say I'm the guy. I am not the Christ. And they say, and then they ask him, well, what then? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, no. 
See, along with their expectation for the Messiah to come, they were waiting for two other uh, prophets to come. One, Elijah. So when, when Malachi put down his pen and, and the words of God stopped for 400 years, the last, verse, uh, the last two verses of his prophecy were about Elijah. I think we have them on the screen here. Can you pull up Malachi chapter 4, verse 6? It says, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord. And so they say, is that you? Because when, when, when the great and awesome day of the Lord comes, Elijah's going to come. And he says, no, it's not me. They say, well, are you the prophet? Are, are you the other guy? Deuteronomy 18 talks about uh, someone like Moses that would come and rise up. And he says, no, that's not me either. It's interesting because John well, Jesus says some things about John. If you, if you turn over to Matthew chapter 11, uh, John has sent his disciples to get some more information about Jesus. And, and Jesus answers them, but then Jesus turns to his disciples and notice what he says about John. John chapter 11, verse 11. It says, Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. Now just pause and think about that. Among those born of women, that's everybody but Adam and Eve. <laughs> Everyone who's ever lived, there's never been anyone as great as John the Baptist. Jesus says John the Baptist is the greatest person to have ever lived up until this point. And then down in verse 13, for all the prophets in the law prophesied until John. And if you are willing to accept it, he is Elijah who is to come. But John said, I'm not Elijah. He's ignorant of his own greatness. Now, not only, Jesus says he's the greatest person who ever lived, and he's ignorant of it. Now, we ask the question, why is he ignorant of his own greatness? Modern psychologists would say, well, he's got a self-esteem problem. <laughs> he just doesn't know how great he is. He just needs to be told how great he is. No, that's not it. You know, those that struggle with self-esteem are not the kind that take bold moves and, and risks and lead movements and, and challenge authorities and, and do all the things we see John doing. So it, it must not be that. Tim Keller says that there's only two reasons why someone would be ignorant of their greatness. The first one would be uh, that they are so self-critical that they can't see beyond themselves, uh, that, that they, are, they, are, they are their worst critics. And so they don't see themselves as great. Often I, I know like artists and musicians in this category, like tremendously talented people, but they're so uh, consumed with their faults that they can't see their greatness. So that's one way to miss your greatness. The other way to miss your greatness is to not be looking at yourself at all. To, to, to have your eyes somewhere and someplace else and, and not even be concerned with that. And that's how we see John the Baptist. And so they're, they're confused. He says he's not the Christ, he's not Elijah, not the prophet. And uh, so verse 22, so they, they said to him, who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. So in verse down, down in verse 24, we know the Pharisees had sent them. What do you say about yourself? How do you self-identify, John? Verse 23, he said, I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. He, he sees himself through the lens of Isaiah chapter 40. 
And if you were to go look at that passage, you would see that, that a time is coming when the Lord himself, the divine one with the divine name over Israel, would, would come and deliver his people. But before he does that, he will send a forerunner to straighten out the roads and, and lift up the valleys and, and lower the hills so that there would be a highway of rescue and redemption of people coming to know the Lord. He sees himself as this person. Well, Verse 25, they asked him, then why? Why are you baptizing if you are neither the Christ nor Elijah nor the prophet? Now, it's a good question because in that time, people didn't baptize other people. You know what baptism was for? It was an initiatory experience for Gentiles coming into the community of faith of the people of the living God. So, so Gentiles weren't allowed in because they, they weren't the chosen people. They were considered unclean. They were considered dogs. And, but every now and again, a, a, a Gentile would just say, I, I just can't take the pagan gods anymore. I just think there's something to the, the one true and living God that these people worship. And, and I want to be a part of it. And so they would say, okay, go to the Jordan and wash yourself, you unclean Gentile. You're dirty. After all, isn't that the way of every religion? Like, oh, you want to get in good with God? Well, go do these things. Clean yourself up first, and then you can come in to the people of God. But that's not what's going on here. They're they're confused. Why are you baptizing, John? Well, he he begins to show us why he's doing that. He's he's not only calling Gentiles, the dirty Gentiles, but he's he's calling everybody. Jews are coming out and being baptized by him. And and he's he's showing with his life that, one, you need someone else to clean you up. He's going to say later, my baptism is only a shadow of the substance that, that is to come. You can't clean yourself. But two, this is going to be for not just for Gentiles, but for everybody. The path that is made straight for the Lord is a path of faith and repentance to God. And so he says, uh, John answered, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know. Even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. So if we Go back to what Jesus said about John the Baptist. He's the greatest person who's ever lived. What made him so great? I believe it's that he had a God-given insight to the person of Jesus that no one else had at this point. He had a God-given insight. He was able to see and savor Jesus. He knew not everything about Jesus. We'll see that. But he knew the greatness and majesty of Jesus. And so he says, hey, I'm just baptizing with water, but, but someone's going to come that I can't even touch the strap of his sandal. So, so anthropologists will tell you that in every culture, there's some things that are just taboo, just nasty, just, just, you just didn't want to be a part of. And, and in first century Palestine, it was feet. Uh, it was a dirty roads. It was dusty roads. The roads were Roman roads. They were good roads, but they were full of animal droppings. And so um, rabbis would have disciples, and the disciples would, in some sense, almost be slaves of the rabbi. They would have to provide all sorts of things for the rabbi. We even see it in Jesus's ministry. They go on ahead and prepare the room and stuff like this. Um, but in Jewish culture, they had a law in place so that uh, that that no Jewish person would have to ever touch another person's feet. So, so the one thing the rabbis couldn't ask the disciples to do is to take off the sandals and, and to wash the feet. 
This is why it's going to be so shocking when we get to John chapter 13, and Jesus does that for his disciples. But, but that was reserved for Gentile slaves. If you were wealthy enough or rich enough to have a, a slave and, and you wanted someone to wash your feet, they, they couldn't be Jewish. They had to be a Gentile slave. But notice what John says. He doesn't say, I'm only worthy to be the slave of this rabbi. He doesn't say that. He says, I'm not even worthy to be the foot washer of this guy that is to come. He puts himself below the lowest rung of society because he knows he's got a God-given insight into the greatness and majesty of the one that is to come. That's why John the Baptist was the greatest person who ever lived. He knew who he was, and he knew who his God was. We'll drop down to uh, verse 30. This is he of whom I said, after me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. Now, we know that John the Baptist and Jesus are actually related. Their mothers are cousins. We know that John is actually born about at least six months before Jesus. But here John says, he's before me. What is he saying? He's saying, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and that's the Word. He's the guy. So he's, he knows who Jesus is. He knows his eternality. Verse 31, after, I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness. I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, he on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes you with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and borne witness that this is the Son of God. He knew that his baptism was only a shadow of the substance that would be to come in the Holy Spirit. John's greatness is that he had been revealed, he had Jesus revealed to him, and he saw him and he savored him. But I think his greatest point comes in verse 29. It says, The next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, that word doesn't mean just look or check it out. It means, like, ponder this. Look at this. Feast your eyes. Feast your eyes. You've got to check this out. Look at him. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now, this is language, if, you're, if you've been a Christian for a while, and we even sang it, you're like, yeah, he's the Lamb of God. But up until this point, no one put those two things together. No one connected that the Messiah would be a Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. But, but in his greatness, God had revealed to him that all of the prophecies about the Lamb of God are now being fulfilled in Jesus. And so they would have thought of some things in their history. They might have thought of, of, of Abraham and Isaac and, and God to going up the mountain and, and and God providing a lamb in Isaac's place. They might have thought about Isaiah chapter 53 where this glorious king comes and he's also the suffering servant and it says, like a lamb led to the slaughter, he didn't open his mouth as he went and bore our iniquities. They would have thought about that. But mostly they would have thought about Exodus. They would have thought about 
That time when they were in slavery in Egypt for 400 years and God was going to deliver them and God sent plague after plague after plague after plague to Pharaoh to let his people go and he wouldn't do it and he wouldn't do it. And finally, the 10th plague, he says to the people of Israel, he says, I want you to go sacrifice a lamb and take the blood of the lamb and put it on the doorpost of your home so that when I send the destroying angel to kill the firstborn son, he'll pass over your house. And they did that. And they did that year after year after year after year. And the blood would go on their door every year, every year. And then all of a sudden, Jesus is walking towards John one day and and it clicks. He says, it wasn't about animals that could cover us. Animals could never take away our sin, but he can. Our firstborn deserved to die, but he didn't die. But he's going to die. And from the very beginning of John's gospel, as John wants us to feast our eyes, he wants us to know the mission of Jesus was to come and be the Lamb of God that takes away the sin, that takes away the sin. So so all of us have fallen short, even this week, in thought, word, and deed. And maybe you're feeling the weight of that. Maybe you're feeling the burden of that. But you need to know the gospel is this, that Jesus has taken away the sin. There, there is no weight on your shoulders that, that, that should be there in this moment if you've trusted in Jesus. He takes away our sin, our shame. He expiates that away from our lives. And he sees us as holy and righteous and just. And not only that, he takes away the sin of the world. This is a all, all play. Every tribe, tongue, and nation that come and, and turn to the Lamb of God get grace. So the greatness of John is, yes, he saw and savored Jesus. But I think the greatest part, the reason why Jesus says he is the greatest is because he helps us see and savor Jesus. Now, I skipped something in Matthew chapter 11. Maybe you picked up on it. I want to go back to that a little bit. He says, after he says, no one greater than John the Baptist, he says this, yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than him, than he. So, so do, you, do you get what Jesus is saying here? Say, John's the greatest who's ever lived, but the people of the kingdom are greater than him. How is that possible? How, how is that possible? If the greatness of John is that he could see and savor Jesus and that he could help us see and savor Jesus, how are we greater than him? Well, we're greater than him. He, he didn't understand the cross. I mean, he understood, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, but he was speaking more than he knew in that moment. He didn't understand the resurrection. He, he, he didn't have the Holy Spirit and the power that, that the Spirit's life in us, he didn't have that. If you've trusted in Christ, you're greater than John the Baptist because you, in a way, can see and savor Jesus better than he can. You have power to be bolder than him. You should be more humble than him. You should see and delight in Jesus more than him because you're greater than John the Baptist. But the point of this passage is not, and the takeaway is not for us to be like John the Baptist. Although that, that's a good thing. We should be humble. We should, we should uh, behold and see and savor Jesus. But that's not why John wrote this part. Why did John tell us the story of John the Baptist? Well, the answer is this. He, he told us the story not to look at John, who is just a voice, but to follow the voice, to follow the finger, 
to follow John's eyes, to feast our eyes on Jesus. To that end, let me pray for us as we continue to do so. Father, we, uh, each week we get distracted, we get bored, we, we sin, we, we lose the awe and the wonder. Lord, I so look forward to the day when there will never be a moment of boredom, there will never be another moment of sin, there will never be another moment of not seeing and savoring you. But until that day, Lord, I pray that you would help us by your Spirit to be greater than John the Baptist, to see you and savor you, to be uh, a voice to one another, to, to behold, to feast our eyes on you. God, I pray that you would stir our affections for you this week. And Lord, as we gather even next week, Lord, once again, we'd be reminded of our purpose to see and to savor you. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.